1: or a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown. Sleep tight stories. Hi, I'm
2: Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. You know, I thought as we're coming to the end of season two of Psychoactive and not knowing really for sure what lies up ahead, I was thinking about the sort of folks I'd most want to have on before we conclude the second season. And one of those is my friend Paul Gutenberg. Uh, he is for probably one of the two leading deans of drug history studies uh, i mean paul has been uh he's been a professor at suny state university of new york at stony brook for many many years he's just a former rhodes scholar um you know he started off his historical stuff writing about bird shit aka guano and the you know the the commerce in guano but he moved from there into the field of coca studies coca and cocaine roughly 30 years ago. He wrote a book that might be regarded as kind of a biography of cocaine, cocaine, but he's now currently chairing the Association of the Drug and Alcohol Historians Society. Uh, he recently edited a 700-page edited volume of the Oxford Handbook of Global Drug History. Um, you know, He just helped organize a meeting in Mexico City where I was at last June, it was one of my first encounters with this broader world. So Paul, I wanna thank you ever so much for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive.
3: Oh, it's a pleasure, Ethan.
2: So let me just say, just also speaking personally, you know, I realize I've been looking back at the episodes of Psychoactive, and quite a number have been on history. Some have been on different drugs like alcohol or or kava. Some have been about um, history in certain countries like Iran or Mexico. Some have been about more, you know, middle 20th century histories like on drugs and jazz or the narcotic farms that um, that Nancy Campbell talked about. So history really is a kind of favorite of mine. And, and my true confessions here, you know, when I was eight years old, I told people what I wanted to be when I grew up was a history professor. So for me, looking at the history of drugs, even though it may feel kind of obscure to many people, just seems incredibly rich. And it's part of why I felt this kinship with you over all these you know, years and even decades. So let me just start off um, by, by asking this, this basic question. When you made that evolution, Right, 30 odd years ago, from your early work on guano to looking at coca, what was it that stimulated you? Was it the commodities market element of this, or was there something bigger than that? Or did you have your own personal reason, as I did in some respects, for being interested in psychoactive drugs?
3: To some extent, there was a personal issue in the sense that maybe a little bit more than yourself, I was a, a child of the 60s. So when I was growing up, the issues and the questions around illicit drugs were very much in the air. Um, and, um, kind of resurfaced with me in the 1990s as I began to search around for new topics of investigation. But how I fell into drugs was quite easy at the time, which was I had been kind of proven my way as a economic historian of the Andes, University of Chicago pedigree. Um, you know, all all the stuff, interdisciplinarity. And I was looking for a new topic to work on. And this was in the early 90s. And I, a, a friend of mine who had been working as a journalist in the Andes said that um, they'd been working, th- this was the contemporary explosion of cocaine in the Amazon Andes at that time in the Wyaga Valley. And she told me, there's really nothing written about the history of this stuff. This might be interesting to you. And so, you know, I started poking around and lo and behold, it really was interesting. It was interesting because it was a whole new unknown where if you had, you know, new archival work to do and new facts to establish and new perspectives to bring in, uh, there was just a tremendously open field and it was exciting in a way because, you know, drugs are, let's face it, they're an exciting and sexy topic and they have a lot of, Um, repercussions for how we think about the world today. And contrary to what maybe a lot of people, uh, think about historians, most historians are motivated by questions that are in the zeitgeist today. And by the 1990s, the, you know, global drug regimes and the, um, failures, the violence, um, the scope, the global scope of a drug like cocaine was, um, pretty much everywhere so i began to be interested in his origins but i do want to say one other thing which is what particularly attracted me to doing drug history and there were a few already established figures in the field like david Corbright, who uh, or musto people we could we could talk about um what really fascinated me about this was all the learning that you could do because it is so um cross disciplinary there's so much trespassing to be had in studying something like drugs because, I mean, as you alluded to, there's this very strong kind of traditional anthropological interest in shamanism and drugs and taboos and non-taboo substances. There was commodity studies, which was something I was familiar with, but there was a rising new variety of commodity studies about the social constructions and the meanings that objects and substances have. There's medical history and the history of medicine, which was at that time beginning to take a, a, a highly a more critical turn than it had in the past. That is, looking at medicine um, and its products as a um, kind of a, a an object rather than a methodology in history. And just across the board, sociologists, political scientists like yourself, legal scholars, so many different angles to draw on in thinking about this this issue of, you know, where do our contemporary entanglements with drugs come from? And even basic questions that continue to, I wouldn't say plague the field, but animate the field, which is what are drugs? And so to, the, the the important work here in the United States um, by Courtright was in 2001, which was published by Harvard University Press, which was Forces of Habit. Drugs in the Making of the Modern World.
2: And And that's where he coins the term the psychoactive revolution, right? The psychoactive revolution.
3: And in many ways, Kortright's book there, his synthesis there, is to take a global view and a long historical view of many, many drugs and drug-like substances and follow them through centuries and waves of, of origins and consumption and try to Trace out what is the big question in drug history. Why do certain drugs spread globally? Why do certain drugs become legitimized? Why do certain drugs become illegitimized and then criminalized? So he was asking huge questions. And the most interesting way is the way it begins with this notion of the psychoactive revolution. And basically what corporate, um, proposes, and I think is something that really animated this larger community of people who work on drugs, which is hundreds of historians today, is that drugs were actually quite important in the constitution of modernity as we think of it today. Starting in the 16th century, all types of stimulants began to flow together and reach first Europeans and then Middle Easterners and Asians and north americans and they began to be part of our kind of uh integral lifestyles everything from coffee to tobacco um and then later things like you know
2: coca-cola
3: or opiates
2: or um, or for that matter right cacao becoming chocolate right cacao becoming tea, for becoming matter and, and one can even look at sugar in some respects right right
3: and the work on sugar that was very important in kind of also, shaping the history of drugs was Sidney Mintz's *Sweetness and Power*, which gave—I don't know if you've read that—but it's a historical anthropology of of sugar um, around the same period, which um, really set the stage for global thinking about how consumption regimes and political regimes are closely related. And um, sucrose was in many ways treated as a a drug in Sidney Mintz's terms. But Courtwright's mm-hmm. book. The, the notion of the psychoactive revolution, the notion of asking deep historical questions about, um, why drugs spread, why some drugs don't spread, why they become legitimate by state building processes later by the 18th and 19th um, centuries. Why is rum part of the British Empire? Um, why does cannabis never um, reach that kind of state nexus. He was asking big questions and giving well-founded historical answers to them. Are they all correct? Do I agree with them all? No. But he was opening, you know, the big canvas on, um, on doing serious drug history. And I, I, I still mm-hmm. think it remains one of the, the best books that anyone's interested in kind of the history of drugs can.
2: Well, you know, Paul, you're reminding me here, right, is that probably the article I wrote in my professorial days in the late 80s, early 90s, that garnered the greatest um, sort of respect, and maybe not actually at the time, it's more had long legs over the last few decades, was a piece I wrote called Global Prohibition Regimes, subtitled The Evolution of Norms in International Society. And I wrote that in the late 1980s, and what drove it was, it was even stepping even one step further back than Courtright. It was asking the question, two questions. Questions, really. One was, how and why is it? that certain activities that at some point in history are regarded as entirely legal, or at least not illegal all around the world, subsequently become criminalized throughout the world, and not just criminalized throughout the world, but become the subject of what I coined global dr- global prohibition regimes. And so when I, I start off with drugs and then look backwards and forwards, and looking backwards, the first one that hit me was basically you know piracy and privateering. Right. Which at one point are, you know, privateering is essentially licensed legal piracy. And at some point they become the subject of the first kind of global prohibition regime. The second one was the prohibition of the global trade, the global slave trade and then slavery itself. Right. Which really emerges in the late, you know, eight, you know, the 18th century, then obviously well into the 19th century, with the United States being one of the last of, of, of major countries to ban slavery, at least in the Western world. Right. And then it's followed by a kind of aborted efforts to have an alcohol prohibition regime, a a prohibition regime directed at white slavery, which was a term for uh, for uh, prostitution and the movement of uh, women for purposes of prostitution across borders. And then I jumped it forward to the emerging regimes, global regimes that banning the killing of elephants and whales and intelligent species, as well as other types of activities. And then the second question I asked was, why is it? That some of these global prohibition regimes, you know, result in basically almost abolishing or getting eliminating the activity at which they were targeted. Whereas others utterly fail, so for example, the prohibition regimes directed at piracy more or less becomes largely successful, except for little pockets of piracy, you know, around you know parts of Asia or Africa. The regime criminalizing, prohibiting slavery, and the slave trade, also becomes largely successful. Whereas the one against drugs, you know, utterly fails. Right, where you have a bigger markets probably existing per capita um, after the institution of the global prohibition regime than before. Now, one of my main arguments there was that moral factors. It's not just all about economics and security and politics, that there was actually a trans, you know, transnational moral dimension. And I argue that, in fact, they played very important roles, that there was a moralizing, paternalizing um, element to what happened in all of these regimes that cannot be discounted. Um, and then the question about why drugs failed, I mean, part of that had to do with how susceptible the activities were To suppression, right? That ultimately, you know, the emergence of steamboats, uh, you know, and some other factors makes piracy much less viable. Um, You know, other factors with slavery I won't go into, but that with drugs, you know, these things were so easily trafficked and so easily in such small amounts that it was no way to essentially suppress all of this. But I also looked at the question of technological developments. Right? So, for example, the emergence of the hypodermic syringe in the middle of the 19th century transforms the, na- the, 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 the notion of taking opioids, for example, the emergence of morphine, the emergence of, of cocaine being taken in, 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 in those ways. The, in, a, in a very different way, the emergence of the cigarette rolling machine, I think in the early 20th century, transforms the nature of tobacco consumption around the world. And so when you look, when we look across the board, I sometimes wonder, like if you look at co- Coca cocaine versus coffee, how much did their different evolutions have to do with the potential of those substances to be synthesized into something much more potent? For example, the fact that coffee, you know, never emerges as, you know, caffeine and taking in it, it's never becomes an injectable or snortable drug in the way that coca ultimately doesn't get you know, transmitted all around the world. It's when it becomes cocaine that it becomes a more global commodity. Um, you know, if if coca if if coffee coffee had emerged another way, what might might this history have been different? So when you look at the technological element yeah. of of why these things emerge and why they're prohibited or not, what mm-hmm. else pops out at you about all of that?
3: Well, I mean, you've said a lot there, and I do like your work on regimes, I have to say that as a historian, I was always borrowing from social scientists and especially you and uh, Peter Andreas, a political scientist I admire very much at, at Brown. But for example, some of the issues that you're talking about remind me of the earlier work of um, of Wolfgang Schivelbusch, who is, I believe Schivelbusch is still alive, a a European thinker. You know, we don't have many of those left these days who's written books on big subjects for a long time, including speed and locomotives and lights and wars. And one of his most influential books I found was a book that was published in German in the early 80s called, in the English uh, version, it was called Tastes of Paradise, A Social History of Spices, Stimulants, and Intoxicants. Whenever I teach a course about drugs, I actually always begin with Schivel because he gives you a way of thinking about these shifts and that some of the techno technologies that are involved in the in things that he called the intensification or acceleration of the drug experience, so he begins with these imaginary drug experiences of say what what we call spices today, and through the impact of tobacco and the impact of coffee um up through the impact of opium on European societies. It's a very European, but there you already have these concepts about the acceleration and intensification of drugs. Uh, and yes, you'll hear this every in everyday conversations. You'll hear, I was in a conversation with somebody the other day, yesterday night, who in a hysterical mode said to me, oh, but the drugs today are just so much more powerful. The pot kids are smoking today is just doesn't compare to The, the, um, nickel weed we had when we were kids. So there's always this continuing acceleration, which is, of course, um, in some ways, and this, I think Courtright elaborated on this is somehow, is in some ways, you know, it has an elective affinity to use Weber's term with capitalism as capitalism speeds up our everyday lives and consumption becomes more and more speeded and needed, especially stimulants become part of everyday lives the acceleration process takes on a life of its own so drugs do become more powerful a great example of that is an alcohol alcohol used to be very low grade you know you could only get 7 or 8% naturally at most in beers most beers around the world were 1 or 2% and wines you know 11 or 12% but come the 17th and 18th century with new distilling techniques in the 19th century you can make whiskies And beyond that are just basically all alcohol. And Mm -hmm. that creates social problems in its wake that, you know, lighter substances did not in themselves entail. So. Raman well, Paul, Paul, I
2: should interrupt, you're, you're, inter- you're, you're reminding me of two things here. One is that I remember when I first read the Chivalbish book, and that book became very popular among my you know, friends who were all interested in kind of the, the, the sociology of drugs and ways of thinking about drugs. But the thing that most stood out for me was the way he talked about spices playing yes. a kind of psychoactive role yes. in, in the Middle Ages and you know, yes. 13, 14, 14, because that was a period when you didn't have coffee, you didn't have. Tobacco only gets yes. to Europe and in the 1600s uh, and spices play a range of roles um, in terms of you know I mean they cover over the way people smell, they help with food when food's not very interesting but also there was a psychoactive element to that, and a lot of the writing about spices sounds like the way people write about psychoactive drugs in more contemporary times well what
3: what I would say about about Chival Bush, whether he was doing this consciously or not is that he was articulating historically what We call today set and setting. Um, that is the impact of stimulants. Let's call them that or intoxicants, which is today one of the broader terms is coming in has a lot to do with the environments that we're in a coffee house or, um, you know, a gin, gin house has a lot to do with how we imagine them to be. So the point of starting with paradise. Was that these lux- new luxury goods of the, you know, late Middle Ages that were coming into Europe were loaded with meanings, and these meanings created sensations in their consumers, and that that is very similar to the processes that began to be attached in in his view to other exotic substances later, like coca, uh, not not coca but cacao, chocolate, um, tobacco coffee and so on
4: mm-hmm. so
3: it is this idea of the kind of uh, what anthropologists and psychologists call the social construction of drugs um that is a kind of a cultural social construction of drugs and that book is excellent in sort of like introducing
2: that idea without the jargon we'll be talking more after we hear this ad
4: Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids' podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations... Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app,
2: Many of our audience will now be familiar with the phrase drug set and setting, but that's a phrase that's really kind of coined by Timothy Leary, the Harvard psychology professor and LSD guru, um, to describe, you know, drug is one thing that impacts your psychoactive experience, but the other two are the drug. What exactly is the drug and the form in which you're taking it? Is it a stimulant? Is it a downer? Is it a tranquilizer? As well as are you injecting it or smoking it or eating it or drinking it? And then the setting, which is to some extent what... You and the broader culture expect this drug experience to be like. And Leary coins that phrase, I think, in the late 50s, early 60s. Then Andy Weil, Andrew Weil, who was my very first guest on Psychoactive, he develops it in his book, The Natural Mind, which is a right. wonderful book now 50 years old, about why people and individuals use psychoactive drugs. And then Norman Zinberg, who was the yes. Harvard Medical School professor, develops it in a research study in a book called Drug Set and Setting." So yeah. I think you're right in terms of, you know, r- tracing back those origins to, um, to chivalbush, that's very true. Now it's also, of course, the nature of the drug experience, right, that gets, um, that evolves. So at one point in one of your talks, so you mentioned the sociologist Howard Becker, um, uh, who writes a you know an article I think what's it called becoming a marijuana, marijuana yes. effectively learning to become high and the the sort of social constructivist you know uh, aspect of the drug yes. experience or I think about mm-hmm. you know Harry Levine who writes this classic article called the discovery of addiction back in 1978 you know subtitled changing conceptions of habitual drunkenness in America and looks mm-hmm. at the way those notions of addiction and, and you know, inebriation shift over time so just say a little more about that that, um, you know, this social constructivist element in the field of uh, drug history.
3: I mean, you know, I'm going perilously into social constructionism or social constructivism, as sociologists like to call it. Um, Becker is a fascinating character, by the way, in every his his origins, his his musicality. You know, he's still living in
2: Paris, apparently. No, well, you know, he splits his time between Paris, where he's become a famous sociologist profiled in New Yorker magazine, and living in San Francisco, where he's still working and writing at the age of 94. It's just incredible. But that article
3: (laughs) really was a kind of a breakthrough piece. Um, In the
2: 1950s, he wrote that. In the
3: 1950s, where he observed, I think he was a University of Chicago graduate student. Everything always goes back to the University of Chicago. Um, And he did it basically a... Participant in ethnography with jazz musicians and their audiences. And those are some of the few people who you could find who were smoking marijuana in the 1950s. And he came up with this thesis that's very similar to what, um he was, as you said, Vile, Vile brought up later, or made into a broader one, that you had to learn how to use marijuana. You had to learn... What effects you could have. Your brain had to kind of be in a group and had to, you know, you could smoke pot and be like Bill Clinton, allegedly, and not get high. Or you could smoke pot and you could get high because you were getting all these cues from the people around you as to how to build that inter, you know, that personal but also interpersonal experience and that's constructivism which has a broader history in philosophy and the social sciences in general you know in sociology there is this broader school of, you know about social constructivism that really went mad by the 1980s where everything became socially constructed gender race blah 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 in the world of drugs it has a specific meaning and still is an internal debate as to you know what is the biological or chemical input there are some um, students of drugs who will still say there's an important biological or chemical input to the drug experience to those on the other extreme who say there's very little but it's an important school vitally important school in animating how people look at drugs in history because it's it can begin to you can begin to wrap your way around how Drugs become socialized, how they change over time, the internalization of meanings about drugs, how certain drugs become domesticated, which is something that most people would prefer, that is, used in normal situations, used in ritual situations, used um, modestly, or on the contrary, used in dangerous and risky ways, that um endanger not only the individual but they endanger society so um historians have taken a a, have really bought into most of the constructivist ideas which really do go i think go back to becker i was never convinced i'd like to see that that leary invented the term um
2: yeah yeah i'm pretty pretty sure i'm pretty sure it was i know it's attributed to him
3: but it may be one of those uh, urban legends. Anyway, no, no you give I actually
2: ex- think it's not widely known. In fact, that he or that he originated it. I think he, you know he was a very creative intellectual. Be even, you know before his days of going, you know into the guru area. So uh, it was a powerful notion that I think he he applied obviously to his psychedelic use, but applied more broadly. But you know, Paul, I cut you off on another point you were about to make there, which is it was once again talking about the transformation in the technologies around drugs, and you had begun to mention the gin epidemic, right? You know, that in the the 1600s, when you have the emergence, and I I, I interviewed Ed Slingerland, um, who wrote that wonderful book about why is it, uh, I think it's called Drunk, Drunk is the name of it. Right. Um, about, you know, why does alcohol persist throughout global society, notwithstanding its overwhelming harms, he yeah. makes the argument, the dominant argument of the book, is that, in fact, the, the, it added more in the benefits of alcohol consumption in terms of yes. human evolution and civilization, exceeded the harms. But then he puts a caveat yeah. at the end where he said maybe the emergence of distilled alcohol first in Asia in, I think, the 13th, 14th century, and then in Europe around the 1600s, maybe Changes the calculus, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that could probably be said. I mean, I made the reference before to the cigarette rolling machine, which transforms Mm -hmm. tobacco consumption, and the invention of the hypodermic syringe, which transforms the ways that people can take drugs in a very positive way from a medical perspective, but a pretty destructive way from a recreational perspective, right? So, well, there's another
3: aspect of technologies Mm -hmm. as well. I mean, Slingerland's book from an alcohol perspective. Is part of a larger set of what is sometimes called deep history going back before we have, you know, strong archives. It shares a lot with archaeology and, you know, kind of a, a certain school of anthropology. And there has emerged this thesis in many fields. Uh, the drugs were really important in early humans, uh, mm-hmm. not just alcohol, but other types of plant based drugs. Um, Mushrooms, psychedelics of all kinds, tobacco, and that they were important in creating a great deal of our socialization in groups. Um, and drugs brought people together. And rather than, for example, there's this thesis that is, is, um, has emerged for understanding civilizations in the Middle East, grain-based civilizations, that the main reason for growing grains in the Middle East and the earliest known findings was to be able to produce beer because beer is what brought these communities mm-hmm. into small urban areas and created, you know, larger political controls. And so rather than beer being a side effect of, of a Neolithic revolution, it was the other way around. Alcohol mm-hmm. was repellent to Neolithic revolutions and the formations of of early states, and similar theses have been made about some of the ancient um, of uh, societies of the Americas. And psychedelics and tobacco. Well, Paul, I
2: remember and, actually at, at your at your keynote address in Mexico City this past June, right, to the uh, conference of alcohol and drug historians, you talked about that early. You point make the point first of all that it's the Americas from which the large majority of psychoactive plant substances emerge, right? It's yes. not as much Asia and Africa, and that secondly that that early history, you know, among, both among small groups, and then at some point then becoming more of a tool of the elites. Um, once mm-hmm. you begin to get the larger Inca and Aztec et cetera empires,
3: right? right. Well, there's a it's a it's a very open area of study um, among archaeologists and anthropologists, but it's getting more and more uh, attention now. Although I have to say that the the notion of psychedelics in the Americas or whatever we're going to call them the term changes from um, time to time goes back to classic ethnobotanist, I think it was a guy named Winston Labar, who first termed this idea of the American drug complex. And he just did this kind of empirical study, and he found out that something like 80% of what were known uh, of psychoactive alkaloidal substances that were used had their origin somewhere in the Americas, usually in the the tropics. So there's an ecological reason for this, but why societies, small scale and then larger scale societies got so involved. And so it was a topic of tremendous um, research by ethnobotanists, the most famous of whom you're probably familiar with. Um, who's Richard Evan Schultes?
2: And whose at name has probably been mentioned on more episodes of Psychoactive than almost any other. <laughs> then I won't no, mention I, it. <laughs> what I appreciated, however, was that you also pointed out that he was, from an American perspective, very pivotal and had a global influence, but that there were other European equivalents who even preceded him in yes. some of these uh, ethnobotanical studies.
3: Yes, he was not the first ethnobotanist, but he had a tremendous impact because of his position at Harvard. He was somewhat of a maverick. I, I don't know. He was apparently a Republican. Um, and he had very, he had very conservative, uh, political views, but he did, you know, he collaborated with Hoffman too, in, um, one mm-hmm. book later about, but he was a Albert Hopp, Just You, you yes. got to use
2: full names here with Albert, Albert Hoffman, Hoffman, who, you not, know, who, not, who, who discovered LSD or synthesized it and then synthesized yes, it, mescaline as yeah, well. In the forties. Um,
3: but he was a cat, he was an ethnobotanist who, did a lot of firsthand research among indigenous peoples and other peoples in Colombia and in the Amazon. And he had this anthropologist, ethnobotanist idea of drugs, neutral. It's something to be studied. It's something Mm -hmm. to be relativized. All societies use them. We need to know more about this. We need to know about their meanings, their forms of ingestion, their, their chemistries. And he was a great cataloger of the of the particularly hallucinogenic um plants mm-hmm. of the Americas. And he kind of legitimized
2: them. No, and a powerful a... influence on Andy Weil and Wade Davis yeah. and Dennis McKenna yes. and a whole range of others. Yes, he course, And also somebody, because he was trying these substances as well. It makes you realize how pathetic in some respects that here you have the federal government, National Institute on Drug Abuse, you know, spending billions of dollars to give out to study drugs to people who are essentially required not to have used those drugs. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just, you know, let, let's, let's tie our hands behind our back and trying to make general Generalizations about the properties of these substances. Right. But
3: yeah. it, um, go, going back to your idea about technology, another thing to take into account are the technologies of smuggling and contraband in the mm-hmm. 20th century. And um, there's a lot of interest in that now, and smuggling cultures and smuggling routes, and how drugs become illicit, smuggled goods, and their technology is important too. Because you know, what are the first technologies that are used? They're going to be, you know. People walking with through borders with, you know, a few, it's called ant smuggling, and then there's going to be the automobile, and then there's going to be the train, and then there's going to be the airplane, and then there's going to be the internet. And you get to a point where the technologies that are supporting um, the abilities of smugglers and contrabandists to get around a prohibitionist regime, which is taking shape really from the 60s onwards, the technologies are favoring, um, smuggling, uh, more than the control. Well- I mean, Paul,
2: that goes into what some people call the iron law of prohibition, right? Of drugs getting more potent, uh, more compact. You know, probably the scientific article I've most quoted over many episodes of Psychoactive is the piece that Joseph Westermeyer wrote in the archives of general psychiatry 50 years ago called the pro heroin effects of anti-opium laws and pointed out as as you had prohibitions on opium emerging in in Southwest and Southeast Asia, the market shifted towards heroin because it was more Mm -hmm. compact, easier to smuggle, more discreet to consume. If you even look back at hundred years ago in the United States, when we, when we ban opium imports, you begin to have the switch to heroin, right? Um, you can see the same thing happen, um, uh, I mean, more, more contemporaneously with the bans on uh, first on pharmaceutical opiates and with heroin, the shift to fentanyl, you know, perhaps the most compact form of opioids we have available more or less, and now the most deadly. And that's happened in a whole range of other areas yeah. as well. I mean, well, I coca the, to cocaine is, to some extent, that story as well.
3: Well, well, coca never traveled very far as a commodity. It really couldn't do that. It It didn't stay. It wasn't powerful enough. It didn't have that cultural kind of transmissibility. So it stayed within the Andean region, much like what Courtright argue that there's some regional drugs. But once it was synthesized, well, I, actually into Paul, cocaine, let me interrupt you
2: for a second, because I've just having done recently episodes on Kava, the South Pacific substance, and also yeah. on cot from the Horn of Africa and Yemen, yeah. similarly, like coca, these things do not transport well. Yeah. So yeah. that they would have been they I mean, and those have remained essentially regional psychoactive yeah. plant products, right? You Whereas have to coca, go there to you know, go, by virtue of being refined and then getting first into Coca-Cola, Van Mariani, the popular Bordeaux wine with the coca infusion, and then more in the broader cocaine markets is different in that regard, right? Um, very coffee, transportable. But coffee and tobacco and tea, those all do transport very well. Very well. And alcohol, can be produced anywhere, but also transports very well right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the transportability of different substances appears to make us very significant. I mean, if you ask why, why then cava kava or kat, I mean, those things might've been more appealing if in, in a kind of, um, modernized element if they could have traveled well. It, may, it makes you, I mean, I always wonder the question, what would compete effectively with coffee in the contemporary world? And if coca becomes decriminalized in some ways, could it emerge as a competitive product? Or if they figure out with katra kava, how to turn it into something? Or is it the flavor, the smell, and the taste? And that's why coffee is so preeminent. Whereas that does that's not true of many of these other substances.
3: Well, we're going to be getting a, a lot of questions variety. that you hear. A wider variety of caffeinated or pseudo-caffeinated substances like guarana from Brazil or mate from the southern cone, they could become minor competitors as global commodities to coffee. But, you know, coffee is is coffee. Though there was a problem. Listen, in the 1920s... I wish you mean of- coffee
2: is coffee because of its wonderful aroma I <laughs> it's mean, got that...
3: everything it's and it's already established itself in the path dependency since the 16th century is the kind of you know primary um stimulant of of western societies and others um mm-hmm. but you know in the 1920s the league of nations was worried that there would be a trade in raw caffeine because there were mountains of caffeine that were being stored when they began to make decaffeinated coffee. Hmm. Um, and they thought that this, you know, this white substance was going to be like the next um, drug that was going to be, you know, cro- across uh, trafficked across borders. But uh, I don't think the global caffeine trade um, never took off as feared or it's only made it into a few energy drinks that we um, unfortunately mm-hmm. consume a lot of um, today.
2: Well, Um, Paul, I'm just thinking if we think in terms of drug biographies, right, I mean, you've sort uh of done one on cocaine. But if we look like if coffee, for example, right, I mean, if you look at where it was originally sort of used and then where the major loci of production have been in recent centuries, right? I mean, that's one, like if you take something like tobacco that comes from the Americas and, and maybe the same is true of cacao, which becomes chocolate, comes from the Americas and becomes globalized, right? And then those things begin to produ- be produced in many other parts of the world. Coca maybe the same thing where you begin to get production in the East Indies, for example, Indonesia, Malaysia. But I'm thinking about when we look at these substances, which are the ones that, Sort of emerge in one area and that region continues to be the dominant production region throughout centuries. Which are the ones where it begins in one region and then another region basically becomes a dominant uh, production place? And which are the ones where it initially starts someplace else and yeah. then like coffee or something gets, you know, becomes, you know, yeah. disassociated from its original? Co- region. I
3: could give you a whole lecture about the kind of the shifting dynamics of, you know, coffee production and marketing around the world because it's um there's been a lot written about it and it but what i would say the most important thing to bear in mind is that these goods were part of the rise of early modern and then modern commercial empires and colonialism so coffee you know what as a as a plant most of what we consume as coffee today came from the horn of africa it had a across the arabian peninsula a kind of coffee culture and spread slowly throughout the Middle East, but it's the rise of European colonialism that shifts the locus of where coffee is going to be important. Um, the Indian Ocean region actually began the whole, um, rise of coffee as a global commodity, but very much under the control of indigenous merchant groups in India and along what we would call the Emirates today. and But then later, by the 17th and 18th century, the Dutch and the English and the French are getting involved and displacing, it was a very profitable commodity, and they displace these native merchant um, networks. And coffee itself, as a colonial crop, begins to spread to areas where it could be more profitably concentrated by these colonial powers. So the first major area where this amplification of coffee happens, well, f- first there's the Dutch and Java, which is still why we call, um, coffee Java sometimes, but is the Caribbean and Haiti and the French. They grow, they, 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 they plantationize coffee in the Caribbean with the slave regime in Saint-Domingue. And then when that's overthrown in the 18th century, coffee begins to spread to another slave regime in Brazil and expands on a global scale in the 19th century in a way that had never been seen before. Very much part of the rise of the informal American sovereignties in the Americas. So the big coffee market that's emerging in the 19th century is between the mass consumption of coffee in the United States with all the rise of these frontier markets and coffee roasters and AMPs and all of this. And these Brazilian plantations that are multiplying and multiplying, particularly around the Santos, you know, Sao Paulo region. So by the end of the 19th century, Brazil is producing 80 to 90% of the world's coffee. And it's like a hundred times more coffee than had been produced at the beginning of the 19th century. And it's become an everyday Commodity democratized in the United States and beginning to become democratized in Europe as well, and really, you know, at that point, has transformed, um, the way we we live.
2: Um, And why does Brazil lose that role then in the twentieth century?
3: Brazil still has an important role in the history of coffee, but to give you the short answer of that, the commodity historian and myself will will tell you this: is that Brazil continued to be very important along with Colombia and Central America dominating world coffee markets until the 1980s. And something happened at the end of the 1980s that changed the way coffee um, was marketed globally. And that was the end of the Cold War. At the end of the Cold War, the International Coffee Agreement, which was a way that the United States thought that it was containing revolution in the tropical belts of the Americas and Africa, and Southeast Asia, because so many millions of coffee peasants depended on the price of coffee being, you know, stable, so they wouldn't become communists. The Americans withdrew all their support from the International Coffee Agreement, and so coffee began to fluctuate in price in in ways that was unimaginable during the Cold War. And that's led to the rise of these new coffee producers. Vietnam is one of the largest coffee producers in the world now, ironically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also African countries. The coffee belt has sort of spread throughout the globe there, Um, you know, more in response to market mechanisms than this politicized market that had been in the mercantilist market that had been in the
2: 20th century. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4.
4: Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums, but I've created a solution. The perfect kids' podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations... Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. (laughs) That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was...
2: Now, Paul, to compare and contrast to other drugs, coca is so identified with the Andean region of Latin America. But there's a point at which what the Dutch take it to East Asia, and that emerges yes. as what? An, I don't know. Was it an even more dominant export exporter for some years than, yes. than Latin America? Yeah. What's um, the quick version of that story about well, the how quick that version comes about of that about is and it, it is
3: uh, around 1900. Coca is emerging along with cocaine you know, as a sizable, important um, new drug. Um, it was used in drinks. It was used in medicines. Cocaine was a, a medical commodity of great importance, particularly in surgery. It was beginning to be, there were beginning to be some uh, strong reservations about its wider use. And so in, European imperial powers, including the British, the French, the Dutch, and the Germans, began experimenting with their own cocoa plantations. They all wanted to see if in their colonies, you know, this was the era of the imperialist grab, particularly in Africa, in their own colonies, whether or not they could make a killing on, you know, a wide variety of commodities and drug substances. The British did successfully grow coca in India and Sri Lanka. But the one that really took off was the Dutch, and there was a long history behind this. Um, Dutch were consummate commercial imperialists and their botanical gardens were, um, were always, um, experimenting with new commodities. And they started setting up in Java and Sumatra kind of model plantations for coca. And the coca plantations there were much more cost effective than they were in the Andes, where it was generally a kind of a, a chaotic peasant run crop, the way we think of today, um, coffee, say, in a smallholder place like Colombia. And instead, there were these massive plantations, very high productivity, linked to scientific processes and linked to a kind of a mercantilist policy of the Dutch state, which was to dominate the cocaine markets of Europe. And so the Dutch set up this national cocaine factory, and it was in the middle of Amsterdam. And all this, you know... East Asian coca came up there in the teens and through the 1920s, was made into cocaine, spread around Europe. Um, there was so much of it being produced in Holland that it was infiltrating sort of in a gray zone into Asian markets as well as a kind of an illicit drug.
2: Um And so it was a success, but there's never any there's never any real emergence of domestic consumption of coca cocaine in these other parts of the world. Not very
3: much that we can you know that we can point Mm -hmm. to. um, Not in Indonesia, in what we call today Indonesia. There are people who are studying that in the case of India, whether or not that happened in the case of India or not. But really, not Mm -hmm. no. Um, Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that the Dutch actually uh, got rid of most of their cocaine and coca voluntarily it was one of the few examples of this happening. And that is when they were, it has to do with some very complex politics of the league of nations and trying to limit drugs in the 1920s and 1930s. And the, the Dutch decided that the cocaine business was just not yeah. that important to them. What was more important was getting concessions about their opiate farming, as it was called in Southeast Asia. So they downgraded the, um, the cocaine colonialism that they had. The Japanese had done something very similar, by the way, with Formosa, what we call today Taiwan, um, and d- developed a very high-grade modernistic cocaine industry based on um, Formosan colonized coca. That was some of the largest um, pharmaceutical companies in Japan, were involved in this.
2: So, Paul, switching subjects here, you know, on the criminalization and evolution of prohibition regimes, right? I mean, both—I I, I don't just mean global regimes, but even prohibition laws. But when we look at these prohibitions from a more global perspective, is it right to put it all on the U.S. and on the West as being the driving force for all of these things? Or in fact, are there varied traditions of prohibitionism throughout the world going back centuries, if not millennia?
3: So you've asked a good question. What is it that makes 20th century global prohibition your term? There are some historians who try to contest that we never really had Full global prohibition. What what is it that makes it different? One of the things in my mind that makes it different is is part of this whole thing that you know what 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 um, sociologists like Scott would call high modern modernism. This idea that the state can absolutely try to control individual behavior, restructure society according to you know a set of ideal parameters, and we've seen that most of those ideas you know have failed whether it be the soviet union or drug prohibition they fall into kind of overambitious, you know state-led projects and i think a lot of people who are looking at drugs are now and alcohol as well alcohol prohibition you said that you had magura on here you know her thesis is that alcohol prohibition in the united states was integral to the process of modern you know federal state building in the united mm-hmm. states and i think a lot of people who look at drugs now are interested in its intersection with processes like state building and wars, but whether or not is it always from the center? Is it that that has been one of the most contested um, issues in recent years? And I'll just give you an example of one of the most interesting books on this subject, which is um, Isak Campos, a very good colleague of mine, uh, published a book about a decade ago called "Homegrown Marijuana." and the origins of Mexico's war on drugs. What he argues in here is that in by the 19th century, first of all, marijuana cannabis is not uh, indigenous to Mexico, but it was one of these drugs that gets adopted and becomes indigenized during the 19th century, mostly by non-indigenous peoples, mestizo peoples in Mexico. But by the late 19th century, it becomes very much the discourses around marijuana become very, frightening to Mexican elites. Marijuana is something that that poor, desperate, violent people use, and there's this idea of marijuana leading to madness, an idea that um, comes and goes every 10 years or so, you know, even now. Um, and so marijuana madness, you know, what was translated in the United States as reefer madness, according to Compost, is really a conception that's that's made in its modern form in Mexico. And Mm -hmm. Mexico's drug laws by 1917 are beginning the prohibition of marijuana in Mexico. And so he, in the end, it's always suggestive, but he suggests that what happens in the United States rather than racism against Mexican-Americans, he suggests it was a different type of flow. Mexico's prohibitionist fears and anxieties about marijuana become adopted by physicians and politicians in the United States in the 1930s and are then amplified by the kind of Anslinger type of campaign. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in Campos's idea, you know, so there's nothing that's American about this. It's can be, it can have origins in other
2: places as well. Paul, just to like tangent off of this, you one point you also make in your writing is that cannabis is paradoxically the least studied of the major world drugs. Yes. Why do you think that? Why do you think that is? Oh
3: yeah. Well, I
2: think that that is actually being remedied
3: now. I think there are a lot of people who are doing dissertations, serious dissertations. I had one in my own department about the Caribbean recently, but I I, I have a a pretty good thesis as to why. When drug history began, it really began with the hard drugs, right? It became with those studies that we mentioned earlier about opiates. And then people began to study cocaine. And for some reason, marijuana just remained completely out of the scope of people who were doing serious studies. And why was that? Well, I think in part, it was the image problem. Marijuana was just too much of a stoner's drug. It was something that we assumed we knew about. Um, it was too easy. Um, it wasn't something that was befit a serious type of study. It was kind of the cheech and chong of drug history. <laughs> but that has begun to shift. I mean, there are very serious studies that are emerging and they're changing a lot of ideas about the global spread. Of cannabis, about the global impact. About I global mean, Paul, pollution. I was
2: struck by the amount that's coming out about cannabis in Africa. I mean, just before a yes. recent trip I took to Nigeria and Sierra Leone, I was doing some background reading, and there's serious scholarship about yes, cannabis in South Africa and West Africa, or parts other yes. parts. So yes, yeah.
3: because it was always assumed that, for example, that um, uh, well, there was even a synthesis by Chris Duval, "The African Roots of Marijuana," came out mm-hmm. just a few years ago, and um, has had a tremendous impact on the field. And he argues that Africa was an important way station in the globalization and dissemination of marijuana to the Americas and elsewhere, that it's this completely hidden history of very, very um, um, rapid African innovation and use of different forms of cannabis, including, and this might shock you, the invention of the bong, uh, <laughs> in East Africa. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot about Duval's book that, uh, other historians who work on cannabis have said, oh, well, I don't know if that linguistic argument works that well, or there's not enough research on this. But I think cannabis's time has come now for serious research, given that, um, it stopped being such a marginal topic. I mean, you know, for years the only source that people had was the marijuana conviction. Those Mm -hmm. types of works that were written very much in haste in the early seventies in order to, you know, have a a counter critique
2: to And for our listeners, that's the Marijuana Conviction by Richard Bonney and Whitebread. Uh, Richard Bonney, having been the deputy director of the Nixon Schaefer Commission 50 years ago, and still a professor teaching at the University of Virginia Law School. So, Paul, since we're almost out of time, last question here. When we look at the major lacunae. In drug history studies these days, I mean, we see more stuff emerging on synthetic drugs, for example, and how important that is, raises important questions about, you know, as more and more drugs can be produced synthetically at lower costs and getting them from their plant origins, that's going to represent a major evolution. But the thing that struck me, in part because of my own personal role in all of this over the last 30 years, my own evolution, is it still seems that I cannot think of a serious, really substantive, comprehensive history of U.S. drug policy from the 1970s to the present in terms of looking at the war on drugs, in terms of looking at the congressional politics, in terms of looking at White House policy of people going into, you know, doing FOIA requests and doing archival research. I don't know if you can think of anything, I mean, substantial. And I wonder, you know, is this in the works or are there good reasons why this hasn't happened as yet?
3: That's a great question. You know, you Somebody else brought that up with me recently. I and, mean, you know, sometimes in academic fields, there are some questions that are so big that they just remain there as holes because people assume it's been done and it hasn't been done. And you're mm-hmm. right. There have been people who've worked a lot on the mid century um, and US drug policies, like the book by Catherine Friedel. There's more and more work in kind of those historical archives, but I don't think that there's an overarching history of the u.s war on drugs in part it's because like a lot of historical questions people are waiting to see how it turned out how does the story (laughs) end
2: and now
3: that we see that the story is ending in a way that was not predicted by its constructors in the 1950s through 70s um and is falling apart and losing all consensus and losing global consensus as well for example we have no partners to wage a war on drugs left in Latin America. Um, that's an important example.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think, yeah, it's time. And I, I, I've heard of people, um, I, for example, a colleague of mine in Britain who worked on Mexico wants to write a history of the DEA in this whole period. Mm-hmm. Um, and their involvements, but he says it's very difficult given the kind of a, the, hiding or hoarding of documents. So it's very difficult to do that type of of work. So we're left with works that were written a long time ago, like Epstein's Agency of Fear, written Mm -hmm. in the moment with a kind of ideological... Wait to them?
2: No, that like, was an important book about the Nixon era, but he was a journalist. No. Well, listen, Paul, we are basically out of time. I, I hope yeah. I, we've left a lot of dangling questions and half completed uh, answers, which I hope will take up in future future seasons of Psychoactive, if in fact we succeed in that. But I'm very grateful for you taking the time uh, to talk with me and my listeners on Psychoactive about the global history of drugs. So, well, thank you I'm very so much. happy
3: to be part of this and thank you for the
2: invite okay paul and i'll be following up offline so we can schedule our next bike ride around brooklyn Okay? (laughs) okay if you're enjoying psychoactive please tell your friends about it or you can write us a review at apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Charlie Winninger, a New York psychotherapist and author of Listening to Ecstasy, as well as his wife, Shelly Winninger, about healthy aging and sexuality with MDMA and marijuana. MDMA helped me get in touch with my 8-year-old, my 18-year-old, my 28-year-old, and I can do that when I'm sober because my inner child or my inner 18-year-old my inner 30-year-old has things to tell me and things to remind me of. And that this vitality and spontaneity that I had then is still available to me. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it.
0: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico, Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret.